that's a good side of the internet, that we've been able to build networks of scholars from different countries who before had a lot of trouble exchanging their information. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with the season finale of BOA Audio Season 3. It is July 20th, 2008, and our nine-month journey comes to an end with this week's episode featuring the iconic and legendary Jacques Vallée. Before we dive into the preview, i got a little business to take care of here at the beginning of the show. Since it is the finale, I'm going to make a special plea to the great folks out there who've been longtime listeners and supporters of the program, who've enjoyed the 31 episodes of Season 3 and all the great episodes in Seasons 1 and 2. As of right now, BOA Audio is deep in the red. We need some donations to help us get on solid footing heading into Season 4. I'm not going to spend a long time begging you here for donations. I'm just going to say that we need your help and we need your support. And if you could do that for us, it would be great. Go to banalofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. No donation is too small, and all donations will be greatly appreciated. Thus ends the panhandling portion of the program. I'm going to save my reflections on Season 3 for the end of the show, because I know why you're listening to the program right now, because you want to hear our season finale guest, a living legend in the world of esoterica, a Hall of Famer in the world of ufology and the paranormal, granting us an ultra-rare interview he is Jacques Vallée. To be honest with you, I really couldn't even do justice to this interview to try and sum it up. All I'll say is the first third or so of the conversation, we're going to be talking about big picture issues like the Vallée Renaissance of the last year, the ETH theory, and Jacques' thoughts on contemporary ufology and the media, along with how UFO studies have changed over the last 20 years. In the latter portion of the interview, we're going to be talking about Jacques' books, Messengers of Deception, and the Alien Contact Trilogy, consisting of Dimensions, Confrontations, and Revelations. I'll have more to say about those in a moment. But the gist of it is, I sat down in the week prior to the interview with Jacques and read all four books, and then had just a host of notes and points there to ask him about. So we're going to be looking at a plethora of highlights and themes found in those books. We're going to be covering just a wealth of material, so sit down and relax and get ready for a mind-blowing conversation with the legendary Jacques Vallée. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Jacques Vallée, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Jacques Vallée was born in France, where he received a B.S. in Mathematics at the Sorbonne and an M.S. in Astrophysics at Lille University. Coming to the U.S. as an astronomer at the University of Texas, he co-developed the first computer-based map of Mars for NASA. He later moved on to Northwestern University, where he received his Ph.D. in computer science. He went on to work at SRI International and the Institute for the Future, where he directed the project to build the world's first network-based groupware system as a principal investigator on ARPANET, the prototype for the Internet. 
He is now a venture capitalist and lives in San Francisco. He continues to research the UFO phenomenon. His website is www.jacquesvalley.net. Check it out. As noted in the preview of the show, we're in the midst of a little bit of a valley renaissance. Four books from Jacques have been re-released in the last year. They are a must-read for any serious student of esoterica. Starting with the recently re-released Messengers of Deception via Daily Grail and the Alien Contact trilogy, Dimensions, Confrontations, and Revelations, those are via Anomalist Books. Go to Amazon or just go to the page where you grab this interview and you'll find the links to grab those books. Whether you read them a long time ago or you haven't read them at all, now's your chance to get your hands on a copy of these books that were pretty rare and hard to find in previous years. Now they're readily available, so you definitely want to pick them up. All right, enough of my yakking. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on July 1st, 2008. The legendary and iconic Jacques Vallée on the season finale of BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the season finale of Been All of America Audio Season 3. We have got just a true icon. He's held in tremendously high regard. He's practically godlike to many people in the UFO world. He is the incomparable Jacques Feli. This is like the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Oscars all rolled into one. Jacques, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure and a true honor to have you on the program. Thank you very much. I only wish I had the answer. I think after after an introduction like this, people want to know, well, you know, what are they? And uh, as, as you know, I'll have to, to say that I, I still don't know. None of us know. That's the thing, you know, although some people seem to think that they do know. That's the odd part. I guess, you know, usually we ask the bio background question, but like I said, you're such an icon that I think we'd go through the whole two hours here doing the bio background. So let me sort of start with the now. What's going on here with this Valley Renaissance? It's like you're back all of a sudden. These books are being republished. You're doing more media appearances. What's brought you back to the public eye of well, the Well, I'm, I'm not really doing media appearances because I, I don't think, you know, that could really serve, uh, you know, the purpose of, of advancing the research. I think the there has been, you know, a, a demand for information that would link both the, the early years of uh, the of, of the phenomenon, of the, the study of the phenomenon, and the current uh, current happenings, and really, somewhat to my surprise, uh, these books are still in 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 high demand. So, when um, Anomalous Books and uh, Daily Grail suggested to uh, reprint some of them, I, uh, you know, I went along with that and, and updated them a little bit, but to large extent, the the information, you know, is still still valid, which really, in a way, is a disappointment to me, because yeah. I thought that by now we would have moved much further along in, in the research. The trilogy itself, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned dimensions, confrontations, and revelations. Those three books I wrote, you know, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. as a summary of what we knew at the time, and they are still current again to my uh, to my dismay uh, dimensions uh, was more of a historical uh, recapturing of um, you know the, the the history of the field and putting it in the context of really of belief systems and uh, of uh, uh, the, the you know the early years of the phenomenon and uh, confrontations was really the 
the book that I spent the most time on, Confrontations, is really the summary of 10 years of research in the field. And taking cases, uh, one after the other, most of them, practically all of them, first-hand cases with field investigation. In other words, not the kind of rumors that you see in, you know, in most magazines or on the internet, but cases that had actually been researched. And some of them turned out to be explainable with natural causes, and some of them uh, turned out to be real mysteries. And then Revelations was more of a study of the, the belief systems that arise and the, the exaggerations, the um, you know the claims uh, of contactees and, and uh, abductees and other people really cautioning the readers or, or the researchers about the exaggerations in the field and and again these are people most most of whom I I met personally and, and researched those claims well it turned out that confrontations. I think you know all three books were well received. They've been translated in many languages, reprinted uh, in three different types. You know, both hardcover, softcover, and trade paperback in the U.S. and then in France and in Germany and so on. However, the 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 one that is, seems to be most popular is Revelations, which is all about you know claims of the aliens are here, the government is covering up and that type of thing. Yeah. That seems to be what's titillating and, and interesting for the public. Confrontations, which is the actual investigations, the actual hard research data, um, has uh, fared less well than the other two. Huh. And again, that's somewhat disheartening to me. I, you know, I put 10 years of work in, in confrontations. Revelations <laughs> I wrote in four months. You know? yeah. So, you know, go figure. Yeah, that is strange, but it sort of ties in with your big picture analysis, really, of, of what's going on here with the UFO phenomenon and the UFO phenomenon belief system that's just sort of uh, grown here. I got to say, the books are amazing, and like we were saying before we started the interview, I read all four of them, the re-releases here, uh, in the past week, so you've completely blown my mind, pretty much, uh, in, the, in the last week, uh, asking a lot of questions that I had never even thought of before, and I've been looking at this thing for like four or five years now, and we kind of lucked out, as I said earlier, too, that, that uh, your renaissance here has come about, and now I'm sort of discovering a lot of your work has come back into, into fashion and into vogue again. Now, I know that when you released Messengers, there was a lot of backlash about that book and, and really created quite a firestorm with the UFO folks. But it seems now, in the last you know three, four, five years or so, your ideas have kind of come back into fashion. Maybe since the answer that has remained so elusive, since that hasn't come and, and you know it's 2008, it seems like maybe people are turning back towards your ideas and, and really giving them a second chance or, or new people are coming along and, and that's a more viable answer than the ETH. Well, you know, when um, you do research, you can't uh, worry about whether people are going to like you or not. You know, yeah. that's uh, something that, unfortunately, you can't uh, drive your research according to what's popular. I don't write books to uh, to make money. You know, I have another job that I like. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the only thing, uh, and I appreciate the fact that, you know, you're giving me this much credit, but... Really, the, the only thing I'm trying to do is to document the cases that I've been in a position to 
to know about because I think I certainly don't have the answer. And in science, you can never, you know, you can never expect that you will that you will have the answer to what you're looking for. Uh, that somebody else, you know, may come along in in two years or in uh, you know or in twenty years or in two hundred years, yeah. and we'll have. The, what I'm trying to do is to pave the way for, you know, whoever it is that will come along to ex be able to sort out the data that uh, we've been exposed to because it's so fragile, you know, it disappears so quickly. Think of, you know, the people who uh, were pioneers of the field and um, have died in the last uh, 10 or 15 years and where their, you know, their files have gone. Uh, think of cases uh, of people like uh, Jim and Carl Lorenzen, for example, who were among the, you know, the, the longest standing researchers of the field. Um, their, uh, you know, many of their cases have been lost or dispersed. Uh, of course, Dr. Hynek has, has died. And uh, his cases are fortunately have been preserved, but uh, there is, you know, it's very difficult to find really organized data for a young researcher coming into the field now. So what I'm trying to do is to at least put some order into the cases that I've been exposed to and give some, some perspective on all that. There you go, yeah. Since I've only been in this for a short time, to offer that kind of perspective, you know, it's hard to just sort through. There's so much out there. Do you know what I mean? And it goes on for so long, the history of the UFO studies. You know, it's an ongoing process to, just to study what other people have put together, it seems. You're obviously most well-known, I suppose, or one of your big claims to fame is your argument against the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So, you know, a lot of the questions that will come up later on down the interview are going to hinge on that sort of stuff. So I guess uh, why don't you lay out your argument against the ETH, because uh, that's, you know, the big tenet of your research, seems. Yes. Uh, and, and here, you know, I need to clarify something. It's mm -hmm. not, I mean, the ETH, I mean, you know, this is, it's a big universe out there. <laughs> and uh, the ETH may uh, turn out to be part of the answer or may even be the answer. I never said otherwise. What I said is that any theory that claims to explain all this, uh, you know, explain UFOs, has to account for a number of things that the current theory about the current way of presenting the ATH doesn't mm -hmm. account for. And that that includes a, a number of things. For example, the, 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 the typical, you know, when, when you talk about UFOs, people immediately think extraterrestrial. And that's a natural reaction because, and that's certainly the way I started out. I thought, you know, I got into this, uh, and by the way, I wasn't the, you know, the first scientist to come into, uh, into this. Um, other people like uh, Jessup and, and others, and of course uh, the group around NICAP, around um, uh, Major Kehoe, had already done a lot of research when I got into the field. So I had the benefit of reading those books and going on from there. And at the time, I thought, like many people, gee, you know, if, if a group of scientists really got into this and really looked at the data, we, it's probably an extraterrestrial phenomenon. That's very exciting, of course, to a young astronomer as like I was. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll probably solve this thing, you know, uh, in in a few years. I mean, we've got computers, we've got you know talented people. We we can uh, call uh, you know to help us and so on. Well, that didn't happen. 
And it didn't happen because the data is a lot more complicated than that. And that's, that makes it, you know, both very exciting and, and also, uh, you know, very difficult. If, if the ETH was just the explanation the way it's usually presented, namely, a, uh, you know, a civilization out there on some other planet has become aware of us, maybe because of the atomic explosions in the fall, in the late 40s, and they decided to come over and investigate, and what we see is their spaceship. Well, that's the way, you know, the mainstream UFO idea is, is, uh, is based on this. Well, then how do you explain that there were so many reports of the same type in the 19th century, and by the way, in the 18th and 17th century, and by the way, in medieval records, and by the way, as far back as we can go without losing the, you know, the cultural context of what we are reading. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's only one, uh, one puzzle, because this thing seems to have always been with us, and by the way, it may have given us some of our religious ideas about gods from the sky and all of that. So. Um, so that's only one thing that any theory, including the ETH, the extraterrestrial theory, would have to explain, and it doesn't explain right now. Yeah. Uh, certainly, if, if they've been coming here for you know ten thousand years, how come their technology doesn't change? Right? You know, we I don't drive the same kind of car I was driving twenty years ago. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I drive a Toyota hybrid, and, and there was nothing like it twenty years ago. Okay? Yeah. So if our technology changes that quickly, uh, how come uh, their flying saucers are, you know, the same old model that they had in 1700? Um, another thing that needs to be explained is the appearance of the beings that people describe with them. They are humanoid. In other words, they they look pretty much like us. Some of them look exactly like us, are indistinguishable, uh, according to the claims of the witnesses. Uh, from uh, humans. And, of course, we've all become familiar with the so-called short greys, who are also humanoid, um, and they have uh, two eyes and one mouth and two arms and two legs, and they walk upright and so on. Well, if you talk to a biologist, um, he or she would tell you that it's very unlikely that life, I mean, number one, it's very likely that there is life throughout the universe. And we keep discovering new planets that look like the Earth with chemistry that's you know, close to the chemistry of our planet. And it's very likely that given the billions of um, opportunities out there that life has evolved, in, including intelligent life, including intelligent life that's more intelligent than we are. I, we certainly have to hope so. And but the likelihood that they would evolve into the same, something very, very similar to our humanoid form, that is very remote. So that would, it's possible, but again, the, the current mainstream uh, ETH doesn't account for that. So you need a more sophisticated extraterrestrial theory if you're going to explain that. Yeah. By the way, the, the same biologist or zoologist would, you know, if you, after a couple of beers, we'll admit to you that the humanoid form is an accident on our planet, that uh, intelligent life could have evolved out of birds uh, or out of uh, the octopus, uh, you know, that really has a potential in terms of uh, 
skills, ability to use tools, ability to manipulate the environment was equally uh, you know equally prepared as as the primates were yeah and uh, it turned out that you know homo erectus uh, was the one that that evolved into um, homo sapiens but a lot of other things could have happened with a very very slight change in the environment and could still happen if we if we continue to screw up the environment a million years from now we might have uh, intelligent octopuses ruling the earth not humans okay <laughs> so that needs to be explained Another thing that needs to be explained is why there are so many cases of close encounters. Because if, you know, the, the ETH goes, well, they want to study our planet, so they come here. And they land and they pick up plants and, you know, animals and so on. Well, listen, uh, if we wanted to, if there was intelligent life on Mars, for example, and we wanted to study it, we would not need, with our technology today, which is admittedly very primitive, I mean, we still use chemical rockets and, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but as primitive as we are, we really wouldn't need to land on on Mars, you know, a 100,000 times to figure out what's going on. For one thing, uh, the Earth has been beaming out television and radio signals for over 50 years, and those can be picked up easily. Uh, they can be retrieved and, and analyzed, and you'd know a great deal about us uh, just from watching those programs. Yeah. The um, the other thing we could do, of course, is we could land, but we could land a small device that, if if we wanted to make it stealthy, we could make it stealthy. I mean, look at you know the amazing things that we can do on Mars with little robots that are essentially prototypes. I mean, the the JPL guys, you know, develop these amazing machines that have been working for months or years, and they had no need to make them stealthy. But if we wanted to, we could. So the Martians, if any, would never know that we were there. So why is it that we have these thousands and thousands of close encounter cases in our catalogs? And we know that only one person in 10 will report something like this. So it's an amazing you know, amount of, of data. Why? You know, again, the ETH doesn't explain that. And yeah. So I'm I'm all for you know a new ETH, but I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> the, the other thing that needs to be explained is if you believe in the abduction uh, scenario that actually these beings are here to uh, take control of some humans and do experiments on them, then that behavior is is uh, really not explained by the need to understand the human race. If you if you had a technology as claimed, uh, in other words, a, you know, essentially a, a stealthy flying device that's silent and evades radar, you could land on the roof of Stanford Hospital out here in California or the Mayo Clinic or, you know, any number of big medical institutions and you'd have access to blood banks, You'll have access to uh, banks of fetuses, to tissue banks, to uh, banks of um, eggs that could be fertilized, and, and all that you know would would give you access to biological information from which you could you could essentially study the entire human race yeah. from from those banks, and uh, you would not need to abduct you know people on lonely roads at night and, and put them through such ordeals that really doesn't make any sense. So maybe it makes sense in in some 
new extraterrestrial theory, but I haven't seen it. So what do you do in a case like this? Well, I was led to uh, move away from the ETH at the first level and look for a wider range of hypotheses. I, I, I don't call them explanations, but hypotheses. For example, the close encounter witnesses have clearly been um, involved or immersed in a field of some sort that changes their perceptions. I have a case that I've related, for example, in confrontations of a family, and I've met with them, and I've gone over uh, where they were on the road, and, and I've seen their car, and so on, and um, I've met with them several times. Well, they were driving south, and the object was following them close, you know, above the car, and the object was going north. Well, okay, uh, that's what they told me. And I pointed out that there was a little contradiction here. They were going south, and the object was going north. It couldn't follow them. Well, they were completely disoriented. And this this happens fairly consistently. People see different things. Different people at the site will describe different objects, or sometimes no object, and one person will describe an object. And, um, of course, you have to take into account human perception and uh, human errors, but there is more than that. These people have, their perceptions have been tampered with by the object, whatever that object was. And I, I don't imply that it's necessarily controlled by an intelligence, but it certainly looks like it. Yeah. So when you start from that, you have to to look at um, you know what it's a very very complex perception phenomenon that we're dealing with, and the, we cannot take the testimony of close encounter witnesses at face value. We have to check it against something, and uh, nobody has done that. Hmm. And so those are the limitations. Some of the limitations of uh, you know the idea that UFOs must be extraterrestrial. They could be, and I spend a lot of time listening to the witnesses. I, I don't interfere with what they tell me. What these people are telling me is that they've seen objects that seem to come out of nowhere and disappear into nowhere. It's not something that comes from the sky, in most cases. Yeah. Uh, it, certainly in the close encounter cases, boom, suddenly it's there. Or maybe there is a light over the backyard, and out of that light, something precipitates. That's a material object. Well, I don't know how to do that. This is not a spacecraft. This is much more than a spacecraft, okay? This is not NASA 50 years from now, okay? It's much, much more complex than that. Yeah. And we haven't really dealt with that complexity intellectually uh, in the literature. We just haven't done it. You kind of said earlier here that your books, the ones that have been released, they are published 20 years ago. Some of them published uh, 30 years ago, I think Messengers was, and nothing's really changed, and you're kind of disappointed by that. What do you make of the UFO field nowadays? It seems like the ETH is pretty entrenched. There are people who are kind of looking at other avenues on the fringes, I guess you could say, of the UFO world. Well, um, you know, I'm not discouraged because there are quite a few good researchers out there there is certainly a lot of sophistication in part. You know, the Internet has cut both ways. It has created a kind of a circus atmosphere. If you get on the on Google and you say UFO, you'll get hundreds of thousands of sites and references and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and that's 
a lot of it is just the noise level has gone up so much that if you try to put information out there, it's just ignored. Yeah. It's just swamped. Um, and the media, of course, there is a tyranny of uh, polarization, you know, you could say. The media needs to polarize things. So for the media, television and so on, th there are only two possible positions. Either you believe in, you know, aliens from outer space or you believe that it's all garbage. And I don't believe either one of those. I try not to believe anything. You know, I'm just doing research. Yeah. And the facts don't fall neatly into those two categories. Again, there are other hypotheses. For example, when I wrote Dimensions, of course, the title of the book was about the fact that there could be parallel universes. There could be, there could be, as, as Dr. Hynek used to say, there could be another universe five minutes ahead of us. And they could be coming from that universe. There could be another Earth, you know, five minutes ahead of us. Yeah. And there could be, um, and in those, of course, 20 years ago, when we first had those ideas, uh, this was very marginal, you know, in physics. And so it was rejected. Certainly most ufologists said, that's crazy, you know, that's, uh, that couldn't happen. Well, today it's not marginal in physics. It's mainstream physics. We, we know there have to be, uh, there has to be the potential for multiple universes. Um, and uh, people are building models of those. Um, you know, I've been on, on panels with uh, Dr. Kaku, Dr. Michio Kaku. I, I really admire, you know, his his work and his efforts to popularize this this kind of theory. And uh, many people are exploring that. And right now, it's still at the theoretical stage. We don't know how to make a parallel universe, but um, the uh, it's. Uh, clearly the kind of speculation that is part of mainstream physics today. And it's not because of UFOs, it's because of, you know, elementary particle physics and because of cosmology that those ideas are coming into uh, fashion, so to speak, in yeah. universities, in the academic circles. But the when the witnesses describe something that comes out of nowhere, um, you have to ask, what about our ideas of time and space? And we know those ideas are very limited. And in fact, we know they are wrong. We, we know that the universe couldn't possibly be a neat little universe with just three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, which isn't even a dimension because it only goes one way and, you know, and all of that. That really physically doesn't make sense anymore. So there has to be something more. We just don't know what it is. The multiple dimension theories and stuff are becoming more in vogue. Do you think that that'll eventually spill over into the the general population's concepts and interpretations of the UFO phenomenon? Yes, and that's why I, I think studying UFOs is an opportunity to to do some good science. You know, it's a, uh, if we ca if we could document some of these cases better, uh, that might give a an idea for a physicist on testing some of these models. And that's why I'm not discouraged. A lot of good researchers are looking at things like that. And the, to some extent, the, the Internet, the good side of the Internet is that it's made possible you know, for people to, for these people to stay in touch with each other. Most of them are underground right now. They don't want anything to do with the UFO crowd, you know, because the UFO crowd is uh, yelling insults at each other all the time, and it's made up of all these little chapels. 
And who wants to be mixed up with that? So most of the old UFO groups are dead or dying. Most of the UFO magazines, including some, some of the really good ones, have disappeared or are disappearing because everybody is on the internet yelling at each other. And, um, you know, people ask me, well, are you investigating the recent cases like Stephenville, Texas, you know, or cases like that? I don't, I don't go out and, and chase those cases. You know, it used to be 20 years ago again, uh, when certainly when, when I was working with Dr. Heineck and, uh, when I was doing field investigations in France or somewhere else, if there was a case that you heard about, you could go there before anybody else and you could interview the witnesses and they were fresh and, and clear and they could tell you what happened. That's not the case today. Um, uh, in uh, you know, 20 years ago, the, the witnesses would call maybe the gendarmes or the Air Force and they would make a report and you could follow up. Now the witnesses know what to do. They call CNN, okay? They, they put something on the internet and, and they start printing t-shirts. You know, by the time I, I get there, you know, all I can do is buy the t-shirt and, you know, watch CNN. And <laughs> the, the story has already been completely corrupted and you have no idea what really happened. And probably the original witnesses have run away and they're in hiding by then because they, they are tired of being harassed by, you know, weird people. So um, what I do is I try to go back to – I have the luxury of having cases available to me that have not been reported to anybody else because people do read my books and they contact me about things they've seen that in most cases have not been reported or, or have been forgotten. So I can follow up quietly on those cases and I do – go out and meet these witnesses. I want to go to the field with them, uh, reconstruct what happened as best as I can, and and, and see uh, again and again, uh, you know, hear those stories, try to find additional witnesses, and try to correlate all this. Yeah. In Messengers and in Revelations, you're really concerned about the cultish activity uh, that sort of has a UFO bent to it. Well, you, you mentioned that when that book came out, it was uh, rejected by most of my, my friends, former friends, <laughs> in, in UFO research. And uh, in part because they they really didn't want to think about that aspect of it. You know, the, the cults that were growing, they thought that's peripheral. And remember that it all started with George Adamski, who was, you know, this sort of early New Age guru who um, had a little telescope and a coffee shop on the side of Mount Palomar, and he became known as Professor George Adamski of Mount Palomar. And of course, Mount Palomar was at the time where the biggest observatory in the world was, and everybody assumed he was a real astronomer. And um, so... You know, the contactee movement started around that. Uh, you mentioned Scientology. Well, Scientology is, you know, the roots of Scientology are in, uh, were in, uh, in Los Angeles in the 40s. And already at that point around Los Angeles and around the, the, the desert, east of Los Angeles, there were stories of people going out in, in the desert and meeting space entities. And um, so it grew out of, at the same time, you know, as Scientology was growing, 
around Ron Hubbard and um, around people from uh, JPL like Jack Parsons, who was a, a real scientist, a real inventor and a pioneer of jet propulsion. Around all these people at the same time, science fiction you know, started growing in the same uh, in the same arena, so to speak. So it was a very interesting time, and there were a lot of very bright, very interesting ideas that grew out of that. And then what I was talking about in Messengers of Deception was the, the following wave of, of contact stories and, and cults. And um, they came in all kinds of different guises and varieties. Some of them tried to grow into real religions like Rael, you know, the Raelians around Vorio, which is still going and still has the attention of the media whenever they make a claim like they've cloned a human being or something like that. And uh, others were very uh, dark and sinister. I've never really thought of Vorio as, as being very sinister. I think he's, uh, I think he started out uh, having fun and, and uh, his believers really, uh, you know, were uh, believed uh, in you know, building a, a new world, so to speak, and uh, and they still do. Um, the um, the two was a much more sinister group, and uh, I tried to call attention to what they were doing. You know, Apple White and uh, and Barney uh, were going around saying that if you join them and you give away all your your possessions and uh, you just join them and uh, start wandering through the American landscape and you follow their teachings, eventually you will reach the higher level. Um, and I was at a, a meeting that they organized at Stanford, on, on the campus of Stanford University, where some of the students very earnestly asked them, well, what's involved in, in what's the risk in joining you? And the answer was, you only risk your life. And I thought that was ominous, and I, I wrote about that in, in Messengers. Um, I tried to analyze their message and call attention to the danger in, in joining these people. And of course, a few years later, there was the, they, they became Heaven's Gate and uh, um, a number of them committed suicide in San Diego in in the hope of going to the higher level. Um, so nobody's laughing anymore. People thought when when I wrote that book, well, you know, Jacques has been spending too much time in California. This is crazy. You know, this is California craziness uh, and so on. And of course, it couldn't happen in France or it couldn't happen in Chicago. Well, it did happen in Chicago and it did happen in France. And it continues to happen. And it's a very, very powerful temptation to uh, give up on the rational world and um, jump into, you know, jump on the space platform, so to speak, yeah. and join a, a guru like that. And it's still going on. And those, uh, those cults are still growing. And um, they're dangerous. And that's why, you know, I, I agreed to reprint uh, Messengers of Deception because I think it's, it can still serve a, a purpose in calling attention to the, the danger of that kind of belief system. I was really blown away by how sociologically oriented a lot of your books are, especially Messengers and Revelations. 
Well, I'm going to sort of start diving into some of these notes here on the books, if you don't mind. I hope that's okay. Right. <laughs> okay. Great. I'll, so I'll go chronologically. So we'll start with messengers. I believe you're like going out to the desert to check some stuff out, or you're talking about some people that were, and they're bringing a bunch of scientific equipment. You said bringing scientific equipment only creates opportunity for peculiar effects. Oh yes, I would still do that today. I would still say that today. The context was that there were a number of claims. Uh, that um, people had taken pictures with infrared film, of course, uh, of UFOs that you couldn't see visually. But if you went into the desert with a camera with infrared film and you started uh, shooting pictures of the sky, that you would see these spots or these amoebas that seem to have a complex structure and seem to be maybe living UFOs. You know, and that that theory is still still going and. Um, uh, so I thought, you know, you go into the desert, infrared film is, an, I'm, so, I'm not an expert in photography, okay, I should disclose that completely, okay. but, I've, but I've manipulated film, of course, as, as, as an astronomer, I've taken galactic spectra on top of mountains with big telescopes, and I know what's involved in developing your own pictures, and preserving the film and, and the things that can happen if you don't preserve the film carefully. And, you know, any good amateur astronomer knows that. Um, and, uh, of course, infrared film is sensitive to heat. So if you go into the desert with a hot camera, uh, the film is going, to, uh, is going to be exposed to heat and in various ways. And if you're not careful, of course, you'll have lots of spots. And those spots will look very pretty. And uh, that doesn't mean that there is a UFO out there. It means that you've exposed your film carelessly to some hotspots. And so um, I wanted to see what uh, you know what would happen if I took an ordinary camera with infrared film and I went into the desert and I shot some pictures. Also, uh, the claim was made by the people who wanted to go into the desert and invited me to come along that if you took crystals with you uh, that and you looked through the crystal you would see through portals into maybe another universe or another space and you could communicate with space entities at least that's what they uh, the, the, they had received some messages somehow that that this was the case so we did that so we took a lot of equipment and you know there is a lot of equipment that works well in the laboratory when you control temperature and you control vibration and you control your own motion and your own movements. And if you take that same equipment in a Jeep and you go halfway into the Mojave Desert and it's, you know, 115 uh, degrees and you start deploying that equipment and you expect it to work the same way it worked in your basement, it's not going to happen, okay? Yeah. Um, you'll, you'll see a lot of lot of other things and there will be a lot of interference and if you're not used to working in the field you know there are laboratory scientists and then there are field scientists and uh, I've been uh, in the company of both and they you know they don't work the same way the field scientist is uh, surrounds himself with a lot more calibration because he knows that his equipment could malfunction and his equipment is going to be subjected to a lot of other things. And I shudder to see, you know, people taking very, very insensitive equipment, you know, magnetometers and infrared film and uh, ultraviolet equipment and sometimes 
radar and sometimes you know high uh, high velocity cameras and so on into the field and expect it to work the same way it works in the lab and then they come back with a lot of little lights that go on you know have zigzag motions and all, all kinds of things and they think that they filmed UFOs and you know good luck so what do you suggest as an antithesis I guess you could say to that to the bringing the scientific more just talking to the witnesses no, uh, I mean, it's quite valid. I've been associated for a number of years with the uh, with the NIDS in, in Las Vegas, okay. the National Investigation uh, Discovery, uh, Science. Discovery Science, National Institute for Discovery Science. And we've done field work. Uh, we've instrumented uh, places where there was a high likelihood of phenomena happening, but we had people you know, with vast experience in field uh, research with us and the equipment that we uh, we selected and we calibrated uh, was was very very carefully chosen yeah so yes that kind of, of study is valid it's certainly very valuable as long as you have experienced people with you that you can't take, you know, your ordinary equipment and take it into the desert and expect it to work the same way. Now, that actually brings up an interesting point, because I was going to ask you about the Skinwalker Ranch. Were you involved with that whole thing at all? Yes. Talk a little bit about that. What, what were you doing there? I would refer you to, uh, you know, Colm Keller's book uh, on the Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, and also, um, Josh Knapp has done quite a bit of documentation about it. Um, I was a member of the science board, you know, of NIDS for many years, um, and uh, of course the uh, NIDS is in a quiet period now, and uh, the science board is, is now associated with Bigelow Aerospace, mm -hmm. and uh, continue to be associated with Mr. Bigelow and his endeavors, which I greatly admire. Um, so we signed a non-disclosure agreement when we joined uh. that, that board. But I think most of the the, the information that would be of interest to UFO researchers, you know, is now out there through okay. uh, Combs' book, which is excellent, and and through George Knapp. So, uh, and, and those have been released, of course, with uh, you know, with permission and everything else. So there is nothing, you know, sinister or hidden about what what went on there. I think it it was a fascinating experiment to take. Something I had wanted to do for a long time, except I didn't have the money to do it, to, to uh, actually buy, you know, a place, uh, a ranch, several hundred acres, where things have been historically have been reported to happen, and instrument everything about the place with with cameras and detectors, and and have the staff there. Uh, able to watch for unusual phenomena and to um, to keep a record of it, to build a database of everything that happened, and then look at what was be able to distinguish between you know natural phenomena, some of which were unusual but still natural, and things that were outside the realm of natural phenomena. So, so we did that, and um, some of the results are still very very puzzling. Yeah, have not been explained. You make a pretty emphatic point, I guess, in Messengers, that it doesn't matter anymore if UFOs are real or not, because the public's pretty much accepted that they are. Well, I learned that from working with sociologists. You know, in, in my work with computers, I've uh, 
some of the, the, the research we did was in part sociological research on how people communicate through computers. Mm -hmm. uh, my team did that work for the National Science Foundation and for ARPA, the, or DARPA, uh, in the early days of um, the internet. And um, one thing I've learned from my sociology associates is that, um, you know, in, in a belief system, when it becomes wide enough, it really doesn't matter if the the facts are true or not. Uh, for example, if if you could prove through your research that Jesus Christ never actually walked on water, that would have absolutely no impact on Christianity. I mean, people would go on believing in Jesus Christ and believing that he did walk on water. Uh, if, you know, what you can prove physically really has no relevance whatsoever when when the belief system gets to that uh, to that extent okay yeah. uh, and uh, people believe in a lot of things that have been proven not to be true and that really doesn't matter and I think ufology has gotten to that level that people now expect extraterrestrials and you know and they and they may be right <laughs> And uh, the, the fact that uh, the theory does not explain the cases that we have in our files is you know, largely irrelevant. Yeah. And that's, that's a sobering um, you know, assessment, but it's, uh, uh, it's borne out, I think, by, uh, by reality. Yeah, it's a strange turn of events. It's really uh, interesting to see how that belief has just taken hold. Yes, and, and the media, again, the media uh, needs needs it that way. It needs to be polarized, you know, and on almost any subject. I mean, you have, you know, a Democrat against a Republican, and you have a, a psychic against, uh, you know, against a magician, and you have a um, UFO believer against, um, uh, you know, a scientist who is a debunker. Yeah. And nothing in between. And if there was somebody in between, uh, you would, quickly, you know, change the channel because it's it gets very boring at that point. You want to see people arguing and fighting, you know. <laughs> that's what's uh, what television is all about. But, you know, if we were in the 15th century and we were arguing about planets, uh, there would be only two theories. You know, planets move in the sky uh, in a way different from the stars. So they have to be moved by something or somebody. So what could move the planets? Well, they can... Um, obviously, there are only two theories. Either they are moved by angels or they are moved by devils. And so we could argue, and people did argue, you know, in medieval times about whether planets were moved, were pushed around by angels or pushed around by devils. And, um, of course, we know that neither one of those is true today, that we, we know that why planets move around. And it, it doesn't involve any theological argument, or it doesn't involve any beings at all. But um, it, you know, that took a lot of work before people realized that. And there are probably still people around who believe that planets are being pushed around by angels. Another point here in the book is you, you sort of say that the UFO phenomenon may be absurd on purpose to push scientists away, so that scientists don't investigate UFOs. Flush out that idea a little bit. Well. That certainly seems to be the case, isn't it? Uh, that um, the phenomenon seems to... The, okay, I, I'm not saying that the phenomenon is intelligently, necessarily, that there is an intelligence that tries to be stealthy and tries to evade the attention of 
society. But the phenomenon has some characteristics, or the topology of the phenomenon is such that it hides itself. Um, and a lot of its power comes from that. That it, uh, the fact is that even now, you know, 25 years after, or 30 years after Messengers of Deception was published, you still don't have any courses in any university about uh, ufology. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and you could teach ufology. Uh, you don't have to teach a particular belief in UFOs, but you could certainly teach it as an example of a phenomenon that has puzzled a lot of people and discuss what it means for the scientific method. You know, people like Michael Swords have suggested that it would be great to have a course like that, you know, a course in scientific logic and scientific background. Nobody's doing it, even though, I mean, what's the risk? You know, you're not, you're not putting your career at risk if you're a scientist by looking into a few cases like that, but nobody does it. And the, um, you know, I, in, in my work now, I work with, I work with scientists, I work with people who are members of the, the Academy of Science or the Academy of uh, Engineering, and I mention cases to them, they've never heard of them. And the, the best cases don't come to the attention of witnesses, of, uh, of scientists, because the witnesses are not, in the best cases, are not coming forward. I know of those cases because the witnesses have written to me or have wanted to meet me to discuss what they had seen, but they are not going to uh, report it to an observatory or to uh, you know, a science center. One of the great parts about the book that I really enjoyed and found tremendously fascinating was the six social effects caused by belief in UFOs. Um, can we run down those six social effects? Because they're just—it was just fascinating stuff. If you have the, the book in front of you, you, know, you want me to go through them? them? Yeah. Well, certainly one one of the effects is to, uh, and you know, Margaret Mead made that point to me, the sociologist, that one of the effects is to make people believe that um, a lot of the great inventions of mankind, like the pyramids and things like that, could not have been built by human beings. That they had to be you know, gotten from some space beings, uh, you know, taught us, you know, how to build all that. And that's demeaning. It's, it's really, uh, you know, underestimating what we're capable of yeah. as a species. Because I really think that the pyramids were built by engineers, human engineers, and not, you know, not by gods playing some, some sort of fancy uh, musical instrument or something. <laughs> yeah, I got it open here, so I'll just read the first one, and then I'll be respond to it. How's that sound? Okay. All right. The belief in UFOs widens the gap between the public and scientific institutions. We kind of touched on that a little bit already. Yeah, that certainly has been proven in the last 30 years since the book was written that, uh, in fact, the gap is even wider now. That uh, since science has refused to look at this or dismisses the cases that the public is reporting, the, the public, I mean, as I, I remember one time I was in, in the middle of nowhere somewhere in, you know, in the Midwest talking to a farmer who had seen something. And he said, you know, you're a scientist. What's wrong with you guys? You know, don't, why, why don't scientists look at this? I mean, we, 
do they think we're crazy out here? Do, do they think that we spend our lives, you know, looking at nature and working with nature? And when we tell you that we've seen something that shouldn't have been there and that, you know, we've, we've, we've seen it over our land, why don't you believe us? You know, why doesn't science, you know, why, why are scientists always dismissing this kind of thing? Do they think we're crazy? And, um, the, the public is right in assuming that if, if science doesn't want to look at this, it means science is impotent, that science is incapable of studying the phenomenon. And then people, of course, will go on believing whatever they want to believe, because at that point, there is no, uh, you know, there is no rational process that they can get hold of. Yeah, creates a vacuum, if you will. It creates a vacuum, and then people will join, you know, whatever cult comes or comes along that claims to explain those things, and it's very dangerous. You are listening to the BOA Audio season finale with special guest Jacques Velli. We did number two here. Contactee propaganda undermines the image of human beings as masters of their own destiny. Yes, well, that that was a point of uh, Dr. Mead, of Margaret mm-hmm. Mead, that you know the uh, the pyramids were not built by gods from the sky; they were built by humans. Increased attention to UFO activity promotes the concept of political unification of this planet. Very interesting one there. Yes, and that's not necessarily bad. You know, I'm not saying it's bad. Uh, you know, it would be <laughs> lovely if we could approach the problems of the planet, you know, including environment, global warming, and so on, as a unified human race. So it's not negative. It's, um, it, it has some sinister political, you know, uh, overtones, the, the belief, you know, that we're going to have a world where, you know, one world government and that kind of thing, that, uh, but it, it would be lovely if um, if the the the, think, no, the thinking about another intelligent form of consciousness in the universe would uh, promote unification of of the human race in some way, yeah. in, in an intellectual consciousness way, if not political. And uh, the contactee organizations may become the basis of a new high demand religion. Yes, when when you look at and I, I spent some time asking. Again, I'm not, I'm not an expert in in this. So, but I've looked for um, people who had expertise in the history of religion, and I asked them how how does a, a cult, you know, typically twelve people uh, around a guru, you know, maybe a guru and twelve apostles, for example, mm-hmm. how does that become a world religion? And the answer is, we don't know. It's luck, you know, it's historical circumstances. It's uh, the ability of, uh, the the marketing ability of somebody in that group to tell the story, to go out and tell the story. It's, uh, you know, if they become martyrs, if they, in most cases, when you have a cult, the the rest of society sort of laughs at them. 
but if they don't laugh, they they tend to want to kill them. I mean, that's what happened to yeah. you know Joseph Smith uh, with uh, the, the the Mormon belief. Certainly, what happened to Jesus, uh, to the historical Jesus, and uh, then they become martyrs, and that creates, of course, a lot more attention to the group. And uh, you know, with all due respect to the the, the ideas or, or the uh, uh, the belief system that they were uh, carrying with them, it has a much greater chance of turning into a religion that is uh, followed by masses of people rather than just tens or hundreds of people. Yeah. And uh, the certainly the belief in UFOs has that potential. Yeah. And then, uh, let's see, number five here, we're almost at the end of the six. Uh, <laughs> irrational motivations based on faith are spreading hand-in-hand -hand with the belief in extraterrestrial intervention. Well, uh, again, when you're faced with a mystery that lingers like this and you have no answer and you don't see any prospects of having an answer, uh, the human brain, uh, human mind tends to jump to conclusions because it's, it's hard to tolerate something in your environment that you hear about day after day after day and you have no explanation for it. So you tend to jump to an explanation you know, uh, death is, is the same thing. You know, we're, we're faced, all of us are faced with the prospect of death. So, and there is no explanation for what happens when you die, uh, when you've died. So um, we tend to believe that we're going to go to heaven or maybe we'll go to hell or, you know, something. And we tend to run our lives based on those beliefs. And those are completely irrational beliefs because we have no idea, of course, yeah. of what's real, and we have no way to experiment, and uh, or very, very few you know, ways to experiment. And uh, it's the same thing with UFOs, so uh, people, after a while, will jump to conclusions. Like The most likely conclusion is, well, we're being visited by these aliens who have all these extraordinary powers. Yeah. And we have no way to test that. Exactly. And the final one here is contactee philosophies often include belief in higher races and in totalitarian systems that would eliminate democracy. Yes. And we see that again now, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to reprint um, Messengers. Very sinister parallels. And again, those were brushed aside when Messengers was first published. Uh, between some of the contactee groups, and I don't want to generalize here, I mean, mm -hmm. not, not all of them, but there are links between the contactee groups, including the early groups from the 30s and 40s, and Nazi or neo-Nazi organizations. And um, the idea of a higher race, that there is, they are superior, that some of us are, you know, are more developed and more are superior race, versus the rest of humanity, that's an idea that has been popular for a long time. Yeah. And, of course, it gave rise to uh, totalitarian regimes. Um, if you remember, you know, not not only uh, the Nazi. I mean, the Nazi, of course, were believed that the Aryan race, uh, whatever it is, was a higher race and uh, was destined to dominate uh, the world. Um the uh, the communists, of course, there was the you know homo communistus or the you know the communist man who was going to be a superior a superior type of man, if not a superior race. 
And those sort of racist ideas or superior race ideas were very current in the 30s. Uh, they led to the idea of selecting, of course, uh, selecting selective reproduction, and they led to a lot of very, very ugly things in the 20th century. Um, I don't think we should do it again in the 21st century. I certainly hope not. But the danger is is there. There are people talking again about the real movement, you know, VRIL, and uh, some of the recent stories about uh, Area 51 have included uh, stories about the, uh, um, again, the, the superior Aryan race and, and racist ideas, and racist overtones. I think it's important to call attention to that. And again, uh, these are only early, early signs of something that could be very sinister, and I think we should pay attention to it. Absolutely, definitely. Just to throw back to what we were already talking about, these social effects take hold whether the UFOs are real or not. You know Absolutely, what I mean? they are completely independent of any fact of any actual UFO sighting. It's is, entirely based on rumors. Yeah, it's bizarre, and, and you really uh, shine a light on stuff, like I said, that I had never really even thought about. You ask a lot of questions that I had never even considered. And you do sort of introduce the idea that UFOs might be used as a stratagem brought about by humans to use UFOs to guide the population into something. Well, I think since then it has been demonstrated. Uh, well, let, let's start with uh, with the United States. Both the, the CIA in the 50s and uh, the uh, Air Force uh, realized very early on that, uh, I think in 1952, and of course around the time of the Robertson panel in 1953, uh, realized that um, the, the belief in UFOs could be used to hide other things. That, number one, it, it should be uh, manipulated uh, and it should be debunked because it had the potential of being used by a, a clever enemy. Um, and in those days, of course, by you know communist agents could infiltrate UFO groups and therefore the UFO belief should be debunked. So that uh, that 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 danger was was eliminated, and that uh, the UFO groups should be infiltrated and, and spied on by you know our own uh, U.S. agency, yeah. which was done, and we certainly have uh, a lot of published data now showing how that was done. Um, but more widely, uh, people realize the potential of the uh, UFO belief in psychological warfare. For example, if, if um, you know, you build a prototype and the prototype crashes somewhere, uh, why not say that, well, it was a UFO, you know, and uh, propagate that rumor as a cover for what it really was. And there are examples of that that have come to light, of course, in the, in the Air Force um, history. And the Russians did the same thing. Uh, they were planting stories about UFOs being seen in some areas. And uh, I'm actually in, in, indebted to, um, to a prominent skeptic for pointing that out to me, that uh, I had included some of those cases, uh, you know, in good faith in one of my books. And uh, the, um, those cases had been planted by the KGB. I mean, it wasn't usual for the, the Russian press in those days, the Soviet press, to talk about UFOs. In fact, it was a subject that was banned. 
and uh, there were very, very few stories about UFOs in Russia until there, there were a series of stories openly talking about UFOs being seen, and those UFOs were like a, a large umbrella of flames uh, rising in the sky over a certain part of Russia, and that um, those were actually predicted to happen, and people would go out and see them, and they would admire the UFOs. Well, those UFOs were rockets, uh, with, you know, those large Russian, um, Russian rockets were the first stage created essentially a sea of flames, and as they were rising in the sky, and of course those rockets were launching illegal satellites, satellites that the Russians had agreed not to launch uh, uh, in violation of the SALT uh, treaties, and there was no way of hiding the essentially the umbrella of flames in the sky, and of course at a distance, because nobody was close to the base, but the public could see those things rising in the sky, uh, just like you know, every time there's a big launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base now, people all over the West Coast are going to see the, the rocket. Yeah. And that was a way of covering up uh, the the fact that they were launching those rockets that were illegal. And so uh, the belief in UFOs has been used time and again to hide uh, prototypes, to hide uh, experiments, and also to confuse people in psychologi you know, psychological warfare exercises. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I'm not inventing any of that. It's not speculation on my part. It's just quoting things that other people have uncovered and, and documented, and, and those are historical records. There you go. I want to move on to dimensions here and, and talk about some of the stuff that caught my eye in dimensions. And one line here that you had that I thought was interesting uh, and I, I truncated it a bit, but it's uh, that ufology is so specialized that the experts have no time for general culture. And you were talking about the historical stories that mirrored the abductions and contactee type stories and uh, close encounters, excuse me, uh, stories that seem to be populate the history. But you made the observation about ufology being so specialized. I want to talk about that a little bit. Well, uh, and I would make a different assessment now because so many things have changed and a number of scholars have come into the field and have started to, to gather really very, very good historical information. And that's also thanks to the Internet. That's a good side of the Internet, uh, that we've been able to build networks of scholars from different countries who before had a lot of trouble exchanging their information. And uh, now there are you know people in... In, in many countries, doing that kind of research, going into their archives, going into the libraries, digging up all that stuff, scanning it, putting it on the Internet, and exchanging it. So it's really become very, very fascinating, and I'm uh, very happy to be, you know, to be part of that movement. But for a long time, ufologists were convinced that this was completely a new phenomenon because they... They didn't read, they didn't go into those libraries to dig up old cases. And still in the, the mainstream uh, ufology, you will see statements like, all this started with Kenneth Arnold, you know, when, um, 24 June 1947, when yeah. he saw seven objects of the Mount Rainier and so on. Well, Kenneth Arnold, you know, was, came after a long, long line of people who had seen things in the sky. Uh, pretty much, you know, describing similar similar uh, phenomena, and um, so it's certainly true that even now most ufologists believe that this is a recent phenomenon, and of course it isn't. 
Yeah. You talk a lot about the, the French UFO wave of the 1950s and the close encounter wave that went on during that. It sounds like it, it was pretty pivotal and uh, had a pretty big impact on you. Well, it was because, um, of course, everybody was caught. I was a teenager in in those years. Um, you know, I was 15 in 1954. And uh, you, you just couldn't miss it. I mean, it was front page news in the papers for three months. Wow. And one case after the other after the other. And, um, of course, shortly thereafter, I saw something in the sky that I couldn't explain. So uh, I still have, uh, you know, clippings from that era that I've collected. And, of course, there were enough cases in a short time over a single country that you could begin to do some real looking for pattern, you know, some real scientific stuff that you could you could look for um, time of day distributions, you could look for patterns on the ground, you could look for differences in perceptions of witnesses and so on. And of course, that was uh, that was very exciting. What I really found uh, interesting and striking in Dimensions was how intensely and thoroughly the scholars and intellectuals in the past speculated on the nature of these beings. Um, and they had various names at various times and stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, along the lines of people like Reverend Kirk and that sort of thing. There was quite a bit of uh, investigation, I guess you could say, or, or theorizing about the nature of these things. And I didn't really realize that until I read the book. Well, and of course, I was only scratching the surface. Uh, the uh, what what struck me was that when when you really come down to it, you analyze the the behavior, the appearance, and the behavior of the beings that people are describing in connection with with UFOs. Essentially, you have short people who are humanoid can communicate with us in various ways. Are very mischievous. They come and go, they seem to be able to come and go as they please. They, as we said, you know, disappear on the spot when they want to. Mm-hmm. They seem very interested in interacting with us, but we don't quite understand why or how they do it. Their behavior is very often absurd. They abduct people sometimes. Uh, they uh, um, they they seem to be able to fly, to, to fly away. Uh, and, of course, those beings used to be called uh, leprechauns and fairies and elves and uh, occasionally angels or demons. And, uh, you know, theologians were very, very interested in them. There are scholars like Paracelsus and others who've written entire books about about these beings. Yeah. And you mentioned Reverend Kirk and the secret commonwealth of mm-hmm. elves and fairies. And uh, all this has come to us in part through fairy tales. So people say, ha, 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 you know, those are little stories you tell children. But it isn't. The stories we tell children are based on folklore, which is composed of thousands and thousands of actual encounters that people have recorded. And um, some of uh, those cases led to the witnesses being accused of witchcraft and being killed, being judged, you know, being sentenced to die. Um, and to be burned alive in some cases. So let's not underestimate the impact of this. Uh, after all, you know, think of Joan of Arc uh, and the voices and the, the beings that appeared to her, allegedly, and told her to go see the king and raise an army to uh, throw the English out of France, you know. And she did exactly that. And uh, 
so the the um, these messages or these beliefs can be extremely powerful and can have historical consequences. It's not just little kids seeing or thinking they've seen, you know, a, a, a nice little elf in the garden. <laughs> yeah. And you also make the observation here that people want disclosure so bad that they don't question the validity of it or the validity of the information that will be disclosed and or the political motivations behind this disclosure. I think that's kind of a prescient observation, especially uh, with the way the UFO world has kind of gone in the last decade or so, which is a little bit more politicized in the exopolitics and disclosure type movement. And uh, so I, I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about that. Well, um, one thing that really has amazed me and uh, that I wish, you know, sociologists would research or is the the sort of conversion that has taken place. You were mentioning that people in, you know, certainly in your generation grow up assuming that, gee, the, you know, the aliens are here. And uh, or certainly the UFOs are extraterrestrial and, you know, and they take it for granted. And, and there, um, there is no feeling that, certainly when I look at the internet and the discussions around blogs and so on, that people are ready to believe almost anything. There is such a vacuum created by the fact that scientists have not looked at this phenomenon at all. Um, it's created such a vacuum that people will jump to almost any belief. You see these uh, you know, uh, obvious fakes on the Internet, uh, movies and, and uh, uh, photographs that are, that are shown that are, you know, fairly obvious fakes, that um, immediately people jump to the conclusion that these are real and, and people start believing it. And with absolutely no uh, no attempt at study or research or explanation, or, and you could make people believe almost anything now. And that's very scary. Yeah. Uh, especially since, you know, I, I think some of that belief is based on real observations, but we the, people mix the, the real with the false, and they believe they take all of it for granted. And if you do that, you can lead people to uh, some pretty extreme behavior. Exactly, yeah. All right, that kind of wraps up the dimensions discussion. Uh, I sort of, I've trimmed down some of the questions here as we've gone along, so I can make sure I cover as much as possible. And I wanted to ask you about uh, confrontations now. Okay. First, I wanted to ask you about your your point here. You say you're certain that UFOs are reality, but you'll be disappointed if they turn out to be spacecraft, which may end up becoming one of the most famous lines. I think I've heard it quite a few times. Well, you know, I obviously <laughs> wanted to be provocative uh, mm -hmm. and, and get people off the idea that these are just spacecraft. Yeah. Uh, the exact thing I've said is that I'm going to be disappointed if they are only spacecraft from outer space because I, you know, what the witnesses are describing to me doesn't behave like a spacecraft from outer space. Uh, it behaves like something that has the ability to manipulate time and space. And that's much more interesting because it, it brings us to the frontiers of physics. A space, and it still may be a spacecraft, but it's, uh, it's not your usual kind of spacecraft. I'm reminded of a, you know, there was a famous article in Science Magazine, um, I think in the in the mid 60s by a great physicist 
who said, geez, you know, these things could not be from outer space because they don't leave any chemical traces uh, behind. As if, you know, you could only make rockets and that was the only way to go into space. Yeah. Well, you know, what kind of physics is that? Uh, how provincial can you get? And again, this was this was a member of the Academy of Sciences. I mean, this wasn't just, you know, some 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 physicist who, you know, some young physicist who was uh, talking at, you know, at random, commenting on something. This was somebody who had really thought about it and was writing it for Science Magazine, which is the, you know, the reference in, in scientific thinking. And that is still what people think of when they think of UFOs. You know, it's got to be some advanced spacecraft. But then I have witnesses telling me um, that they've seen when the thing took off, it took off through the trees. Well, how do you go through the trees with a spacecraft? Um, rockets don't do that. Yeah. The uh, space shuttle doesn't go through trees. What kind of object would do that? There are cases where somebody fired at three times at a landed UFO. And the first time uh, you heard the sound of a bullet hitting metal, the second time you heard the sound of a bullet going through a telephone book, and the third time the bullet went through thin air. The object hadn't moved. It just wasn't there anymore. And so people say, well, you know, uh, people hearing that quote said, well, Valet thinks that UFOs don't exist, that they are just hallucinations. I never said that. Uh, I simply said that from the witnesses and their testimony, we're dealing with an object that manipulates time and space and can disappear on the spot. And I don't know how to make an object like that unless we relax what we know about space-time and what we know about the universe. And I find that very, very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And you make a great point here that in studying the UFO phenomenon, you really have to set Occam's razor aside because uh, it's just too bizarre and absurd. And kind of like you said, it, it violates so many laws and stuff, uh, physics and things, that using Occam's razor in, in the instance of UFOs, which a lot of people seem to do, isn't a right way to go about looking at the subject. Well, I believe in Occam's razor in most cases, but, um, you know, the simplest the simplest explanation, if you want to look for the simplest explanation, is that all the witnesses are in a big conspiracy to lie to scientists, okay? <laughs> and that, that, of course, explains everything. And, um, you know, everything is uh, is a hoax or everything is an hallucination, and that then you can go on with your life and never worry about UFOs again. The problem is that it does not work, does not explain the cases. Yeah, and you mentioned in confrontations that you were struck by the sincerity of the foreign witnesses. Talk a little bit about that, because you kind of did say earlier how, you know, here in America, quickly, it seems nowadays, the UFO witnesses get corrupted by all the forces that sort of converge on them. But maybe some of the better cases we should be looking at are the ones that happen you know, in more remote places or less uh, sullied places, I guess you could say, by, by UFO studies? When I go out and, and talk to witnesses, uh, people who've contacted me, uh, usually through uh, my books again, very often the first uh, phrase they say is, uh, you're a scientist, Dr. Valley, please explain, explain this to me. Tell me that it was 
you know, an astronomical phenomenon or something in the atmosphere, or it was a prototype of some sort. And, and people want reassurance that their world is still the good old, you know, rational world they've known all their life. And now something has intruded in their life, and they don't understand what it is, and they're scared. And they want an explanation. They don't want to believe that this is, you know, a, a flying saucer from Andromeda. Uh, they want to be told that this was, oh yeah, you know, it's a new type of silent helicopter or, that has no, no, you know, no rotor and no propeller and so on. Or they, they want to believe that there is a simple explanation. And I, the first thing I have to tell them is, look, you know, I don't know, I don't know any more than you than you do. I, I can't explain it. Uh, and please tell me again exactly what it is you saw, and we'll try to work through this together. And I'll try to compare it to, you know, a hundred other cases like like this that I've heard about. And and then they get reassured when they when they know that well, other people have seen this, and uh, that doesn't mean they're crazy. Uh, and uh, gee, you know, we we don't have an explanation, but maybe someday, thanks to testimony like theirs, maybe we will have an explanation. Yeah. And that's, people are very sincere. Uh, they, again, are moved either by curiosity or by fear. They, they are very serious. I mean, this is not a joke. All right, let's move into Revelations now, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Okay. Well, you make an awesome point here in the book towards the beginning, and like I said earlier, you asked the questions that I'd never really thought of asking before, and, and one of the big tenets, I guess you could say, of the UFO world is that the ETs don't land because they don't want they, some sort of like law of non-involvement by the ETs, if you will. You know what I mean by that sort of thing. Yes, you know, yes. like uh, I forget, there's a word, there's a phrase. Yeah, the, ga the Galactic Federation has a law against uh, disturbing primitive species like us. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and exactly. you make the point that the uh, the UFO sightings alone are causing change in our cultures, which flies against the whole idea that they somehow are bound by not being involved. So I guess just talk about that. Yeah, it, it's one of the the, the obvious contradictions in. Uh, what many ufologists believe, you know, they uh, they both believe that there have been these tens of thousands of cases uh, of people seeing something pretty obvious in the sky, or in some cases in their backyard or over their car, or, and at the same time they say, oh, you know, it must be an advanced species that doesn't want to interfere with us. Well, what do you call it when you have thousands of of uh, things, you know, landing in your backyard. Yeah. Uh, I don't call that non-interference. The, the message is, I mean, it's true that they have not landed on the White House lawn, as far as we know. Um, but um, still, I mean, it's, it's a pretty obvious phenomenon. It's not something that's very discreet. That's not hiding at all. Yeah. And then I want to ask you about here, you say cattle mutilations, when you talk about that in Revelations, you sort of uh, put forth the idea that maybe they're being done as a message of sorts, because uh, they're so obviously done, and it can be easily done, uh, you know, in a more discreet way, almost kind of along the same lines of uh, what we were just talking about. What do you think is the, the, the what, what's the motivation, I guess, behind that message? Well, uh, you know, a lot of things have happened since I wrote the book, um, but I did not want to change that section, even though... I have never been able to associate directly UFOs with cattle mutilations. I know that other people have done that. You know, Linda Howe has certainly 
done a lot of field work and, and claims that she can make the link between UFOs and cattle mutilations. Uh, I have not been able to, to do that. I've certainly spoken to witnesses who said they had seen lights in the sky, and then, you know, the following day they found a cow or a horse that had been uh, butchered or mutilated. Um, but I, I have not been able to make a direct link. So as far as I'm concerned today, these are still two separate phenomena. Uh, they share certain characteristics. Uh, one of those characteristics is what, what you've said, the, the, the fact that they are very stealthy, that uh, we don't seem to be able to grab hold of one or find the suspects, you know, in daylight and, uh, and grab hold of them. Uh, they seem to disappear, and what is fascinating to me from a methodology you know, standpoint, if nothing else, is that in, in the case of UFOs, we have very, very few items left behind. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we do have pieces of metal, uh, we certainly have traces on the ground, we have, uh, you know, vegetation has been crushed or burned or or uh, effects of radiation, that type of thing, but it's hard to document. In cattle mutilations, we have a lot of stuff left behind. I mean, we have carcasses, you know, with evidence of, um, in some cases, what has to be called surgical, sophisticated surgical procedures. And we still, we get to the same point. I mean, we still don't have any explanation for either one of those. And that, to me, is is fascinating. How can it be that with all these, you know, dead animals, that we can't pinpoint the cause of really what happened to them? Uh, there certainly have been claims uh, of seeing, um, you know, people associated with them, but we don't have any pictures. We don't have any. Any, you know, nobody has been arrested. There were claims that. Uh, the culprits were associated with some cults and so on, but that, that has been disproved, and we're still at the same point. Yeah. And to me, that that is very interesting. You kind of come out pretty strongly against uh, the value, I guess you could say, of uh, the documents that people get out of the freedom of information methodology, well, I guess. No, um, I wouldn't go that far. I think okay. that um, a lot of really hard work has been done for years and years and years by people who um, were really doing historical research on what the government knows and what the government does. Um, now, what, what I'm cautioning against is jumping to conclusions on the basis of um, documents that have, that are claimed to have been released when you don't necessarily know where they come from. I'm thinking of documents like the MJ-12, okay. so-called documents or the majestic documents that mysteriously appeared in somebody's mailbox, and they are, of course, claimed to be authentic documents. But you know, there is such a thing as as authentic false documents or false authentic documents, and there are people who are in the business of creating such false authentic documents and. Uh, there are entire departments in the intelligence community and certainly in other countries as well uh, creating you know false authentic passports and 
and memos and letters and you know and entire books. Yeah. And uh, so it's very easy to be fooled by that. So that's different from material that has been released under the Freedom of Information Act. There is some naivete about the interpretation, and you know I used to. Uh, when when I worked with Dr. Heineck, uh, I worked with him daily for four years in the, in the mid-60s, and we had copies of the Air Force files. And I would go through his files doing, and we redid some statistical studies that the, the Air Force, frankly, had botched. And um, I would find long teletype sheets that started out, you know, from... Uh, Okinawa Air Force Base Control Tower to CIA White House, NSA, uh, Office of Naval Research, uh, Air Force, OSI, etc., etc., etc. You know, five lines of addresses that seemed very, very ominous and very, you know, very authentic. And then they would go on for two pages of description of, uh, you know, the circumstances where the witness was and so on. And the witness was, you know, Mrs. Smith. And at the bottom, it said what the report was about. And the report was Mrs. Smith saw a light in the sky. Yeah. And I would say, Alan, you know, take a look at this. I mean, why does a White House need to know that Mrs. Smith somewhere in Japan saw a light in the sky? And Alan would laugh and he would say, look, the, the guy who is sending this, this, you know, telex has no idea what he's doing. I mean, this is a, you know, a young 19-year-old Air Force guy. They put him there. It's 2 o'clock in the morning in Okinawa. Uh, somebody has reported a light, and he knows that the procedure says you get on the teletype and you send this to the address list that's, that the teletype is addressed to. And so he says, Mrs. Smith has seen a light, and he pushes a button, it goes automatically to the CIA, the NSA, OSI, Joint Chiefs of Staff, White House, and so on. That doesn't mean that that they want to see it. I mean, there's somebody also, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, or whatever time it is at the CIA in the basement, getting the teletype saying, what the hell, and he takes the thing and throws it into the garbage, okay? But the, the procedure, the bureaucratic procedure is with this. So, you come along, 20 years later, you file a Freedom of Information Act against the CIA. They are going to dig up that particular teletype and send it to you. And you now think, well, the CIA was very interested in the fact that Mrs. Smith had seen a light in the sky in Japan that particular day. CIA couldn't care less, okay? If you file a Freedom of Information Act for, you know, witches seen flying over Oklahoma at 2 o'clock in the morning, they probably have another thousand teletypes just like that. You know, I mean, you 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 keep you can keep filing those things, and you'll get thousands of pages. Yeah. Because they have, uh, you know, I mean, that's a business they're in of gathering everything from everywhere all the time. And now with the internet, of course, it gets even worse, and uh, it doesn't mean anything. Okay. So you have to take those cases one by one. And then you have to go back and try to locate Mrs. Smith and see what kind of light she saw. And then you might have something, but the teletype itself doesn't tell you anything. And the fact that it comes from the CIA is irrelevant. Okay, there you go. That's kind of, yep. So I think somebody needs to do a little bit of understanding of how that community works and, and why those messages were being sent. Now, 
there are mixed in, there are some very, very interesting historical things that people have dug up that, um, you know, that, that are very important to know. Now, i got two points left. Sure. Uh, okay. Yeah, keep going. All right. One of them is really specific, and, and you don't have to go through the whole case, and, and we'll kind of make this one a little gem for the folks who have read Revelations. It's the Purple Justice case. Yes. The provost uh, one. I just wanted to know why he confessed to the hoax so suddenly after the publication of your book. I never really kind of understood why all of a sudden that changed his mindset to confess that the whole thing was a hoax. This is a, a case where... Um, three friends were, um, you know, in the suburb of Paris, uh, near Pontoise, and um, they were getting ready to take their car and drive to a market somewhere, and one of them disappeared under strange circumstances. There was some fog all of a sudden, and the guy disappeared. Um, everybody looked for, for him, uh, including the gendarmes and the police and everybody else, because his disappearance was reported by his friends. And he wasn't found anywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, the people went to his mother, they went to his family, they went around the neighborhood. I mean, he just wasn't anywhere. And he showed up exactly one week later thinking that uh, it was the same day. And so he had lost, apparently, you know, uh, the claim goes that he had lost a whole week and he vaguely remembered being abducted by these lights, and of course he was. Um, there were claims that he had been abducted, and so on. There was a, an investigation by um, French scientists who uh, concluded that the, the thing was a hoax. Uh, the, the guy was arrested by the gendarmes. I mean, they took him fairly rudely into custody and um, tried to get him to confess that it was a hoax. Um, and the, the poor guy was was very confused. And um, after a while, um, you know, there were claims. Uh, the claims built up. There was a whole. It became a cause célèbre in France. Most people believed that he had simply lied, and uh, that it was a hoax. I, I looked at the whole situation, and I was in a good situation to look at it because, um, you know, I was born in Pontoise, so I know that neighborhood. I know those guys. I went to school with guys just like him, uh, you know, in public school in, in Pontoise. In fact, I've met his teachers, and uh, I met him and I met uh, one of his friends who had been with him. And the whole thing was very, very fishy. I think that he literally did not know where he was during that week. In other words, I believe him. Those guys were, you know, small-time crooks, you could say. I mean, they were they were not bad guys, but they were, you know, they were doing some things that were borderly illegal. Um, and so they were an easy target for the police to. I mean, they were not really credible witnesses at all. Um, but there are circumstances that I go into in, in the book that lead me to believe and lead other investigators to believe that this was a setup, that they were uh, targeted for essentially a psychological experiment by some pretty sophisticated uh, folks. And, of course, we know those experiments do go on from time to time. Yeah. And there are other examples in the UFO literature and it would have been very easy to uh, create artificial fog and take this guy out 
and uh, re, you know, retrieve him and you know, uh, liberate him after a week yeah. and, and see what happened. And there could be good reasons for a psychological experiment like that. And um, so I put forth that hypothesis in the book, and then immediately he was under pressure to confess that it was a hoax and put the whole thing to rest. And uh, that's what he did. I met with him afterward. He still wasn't clear as to what had happened to him. And there is no, none of the explanations for where he was really work. Yeah. You know, so um, the, the case is still open as far as I'm concerned. And I still think the best explanation is that it was a psychological experiment. Yeah. Psychological warfare experiment. Okay. There wasn't anything like in the book that little light bulb over provosts uh, had to, to confess to no. anything like that. Okay. That's... No, but I think they were under pressure at that point to okay. uh, put the whole thing to rest. Nobody wanted a real investigation. And my final question here, coming out of Revelations, and the final real question here for the interview, an observation you made that I, I found really, really prescient, one that I always sort of kind of had been lurking in my subconscious but never really uh, emerged until I read it in the book, and that's that uh, a lot of people in the UFO field, um, they're kind of fueled by this need for vindication. And it's kind of a dangerous mindset, but it seems to have really taken hold, you know, in a lot of people in the UFO world, like that they need this thing to be proven real so that they can be proven right or something. Well, and that's, you know, I'll confess, I, I'd love it for <laughs> you know, somebody to say, hey, you know, look, uh, Valet was right, and those things are here after all, and so on. I don't, uh, I, I wouldn't bet on that. Uh, I think it's a very normal human uh, motivation. You you want people to uh, consider, you know, to acknowledge that you were right in, in your conclusions. The problem is that when you, you have to be patient, you know, yeah. and uh, you have to accept the possibility that this will never happen, that, uh, you know, in, in my case, I'm, I find satisfaction in the fact that I've been able to put those cases on record, good or bad, okay, and state certainly some of the hypotheses, and I can go on with my life now. I can go on do other things. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, a psychological need I have to be proven, quote, right. In fact, I think, again, uh, if if I'm right, the phenomenon is so complex that it may be a long, long time before we have the tools in science to, to, to really study it. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't start now, but I don't really have that need. The danger comes when people start saying things like, oh, you know, not only am I right, but in, in, uh, in 2012 there will be a mass landing, or we're going to know next year the government is going to release all this information that I know they have proving that, you know, we're being visited and, and all that. And that's... Uh, almost driven out of, um, uh, you know, out of passion or out of uh, despair, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of uh, uh, prediction or that kind of statement. And uh, I think it's very dangerous to get people involved in that because if you believe that, then you don't have to do any research. You can just sit. I, if I believe that, if I believe that the government had the answer, I certainly would not be doing this research because there would be people who would be much better in science than I am, with much better tools and money doing this research, and I could just relax and go on with something else. Uh, or if I believe that the government is going to release all this information in 2012, 
I could just sit in my chair until 2012 and, you know, watch TV or play <laughs> games with my kids and uh, just wait until 2012. I wouldn't have to do, you know, the, the hard work that I'm doing. So, yeah. so uh, you know, let's, let's be real, guys, and, you know, let's uh, do the research. There you go. That's the perfect end point, I guess you could say. What's next for you? Why? Obviously, these books have been reissued. Are you are you thinking about maybe doing another book? I know you've been interested in remote viewing. No, there, there are some good books about remote viewing. Remote viewing, you know, the, certainly the book by uh, Paul Smith is excellent. I I don't need to add to that literature. I don't consider myself an expert in remote viewing. I've been uh, associated with the early stages of the of the research with Ingol Swan and with Al Putov. Uh, but, you know, other people have written those books. Uh, I'm very interested in uh, the, the history of, you know, the early history of UFOs, and uh, I may write something on that uh, with other people. Uh, and um, uh, other than that, I know I'm going on with, uh, with my life. Sounds good. Jacques, I really I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and giving me so much time here. I really appreciate uh, congratulations it. Congratulations for your questions. You've, uh, they, you know, they range over quite a, a wide spectrum, so I've really enjoyed it. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, that means a lot to me to, to hear that. Uh, I was under, <laughs> worrying quite a bit in the last week that I'd be able to do you justice and do this interview justice, but I think we really covered a lot of stuff here. And, and truth be told, uh, I'd like to have you back on the show again sometime just to talk about the whole uh, historical nature of UFO studies. I mean, you you were okay. on the ground, you know, during so much of the history of ufology that we didn't even talk about that, and I know, and that's one of the big things I love, and, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on the show in the future and talk about that sort of stuff. But I really first wanted to get you on here and talk about your research. Let me uh, let me plug the books again here so people can pick them up. Folks, uh, these have been out of print for quite a while, and now they're back in circulation. So people like me who have just gotten into the field don't have to go to UFO conferences and buy them in the secondhand uh vendor tables. You can finally pick them up through Amazon, through Barnes & Noble, your bookstores and stuff like that. Dimensions, Confrontations, and Revelations. That's the Alien Contact Trilogy. It's available from Anomalist Books and Messengers of Deception. That's available from the Daily Grail. Uh, you can get them pretty much anywhere. And if you haven't read these books, trust me, I hadn't read them until recently. And like I said, they were amazing and made me think about the whole UFO phenomenon on a whole nother level. And this is coming from someone who's thought about it quite a bit already. They're must-read books, and, and I'm really excited that uh, they've been reissued and, and you're kind of coming back a little bit here into the public scene and that you were willing to come on the show and do the interview. Hopefully, this is just the beginning of a future conversation between you and I. Very good. We could um, also talk about the history of the Internet at some point. I've, uh, By the way, I've, I've uh, published two books about the, the history of uh, you know, the computer field and especially the Internet, and they are available uh, free of charge on Google. Oh, awesome. So Definitely. I, People I decided check not that out. to reprint them because I, I just don't have time to update them. But the, uh, the, if you go on book, uh, Google Books, uh, you'll be able to find those uh, those books. So that's the other side of my life. So there you go. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you again, okay. Jacques, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. That does it for the season finale of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big, super huge, monumental thanks to legendary Jacques Vallée for coming on the show granting us an ultra-rare interview and helping us to close the book on our third year of programming. 
You can find out more from Jacques Vallee at the website www.jacquesvallee.net, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S-V-A-L-L-E-E.net. And of course, as we've been pushing throughout the episode, you definitely want to pick up the re-released books from Jacques Vallee, Messengers of Deception, that's via Daily Grail, and the Alien Contact Trilogy, Dimensions, Confrontations, and Revelations, and that's via Anomalous Books. You can find all four of those books via Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or pretty much anywhere books are sold. As an esoteric student, I was completely blown away by these books. I can't put them over enough, and you definitely want to check them out. Trust me, you're going to love them. While we're doling out the thank yous, let me give a big thanks to all the great guests we've featured on the program throughout the season. Running down the list here, Jim Mars, Karen Dolan, Danny Hennigar, Greg Reese, Lauren Coleman, Chris Balzano, Carl Feint, Don Keating, Don Ledger, Chris Stiles, Keith Chester, Jeremy Vaney, Nick Pope, Stanton Friedman, Nick Redfern, Greg Bishop, Larry Flaxman, Christo Lowe, Steve Bassett, Dr. Bob Curran, Jeff Belanger, Gildas Bordace, Richard Dolan, Adam Gorightly, Paul Kimball, Thomas Shackman, Smiles Lewis, Bill Chalker, Marie Jones, Bill Burns, Bill Guggenheim, Linda Moulton Howe, and the legendary Jacques Vallee. What a roster of great esoteric minds. It's been sheer joy to sit down and speak with them. Big, big thanks once again to all the great folks who are a part of BOA Audio Season 3. As teased over the last couple of weeks, we're not going to do any BOA Audio listener feedback because I want to turn it around here and give a little feedback to you, our amazing listening audience. I want to start off first by saying thank you so much for joining us week in and week out. It has been an absolute pleasure to be hosting this program, to be speaking with you over the course of the last 31 episodes. And I love the reactions I get from folks who write to me who have the same feeling that I do, that this is as much their program as it is mine. From the bottom of my heart, I can't thank you all enough for just having me along for the ride. This program will be nothing without its audience, and I really appreciate all of your support. Season 3 has had its ups and downs. It's been surprisingly exhausting, so I'm looking forward to taking some time away from the microphone, if you will, do a little radio silence for a while. I'm going to miss speaking to you week in and week out, but I know that I'll be back with Season 4, and I hope you're all going to be back with me here uh, in October or so. But until then, I just want to say thanks. I mean, you guys are the best, and, and it's just been a thrill to be able to reach out to so many people every week and share the conversations with these great esoteric minds that have populated the roster of Season 3. Now I'm going to overload you here with thanks, because it's time, of course, to dole out some kudos to the fantastic staff of BenAllOfAmerica.com, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. Their help and support throughout the last nine months has been immeasurable. Oftentimes, it's behind the scenes. You don't see their influence, but trust me, it's tremendous. This third season would definitely not have been possible without their feedback, input, and advice. Not to mention the fact that Mondays through Fridays, they are the ones keeping BOA up and running with great reading material and thought-provoking columns. They're going to be carrying the load, I'm sure, over the next three months while I'm in the background putting together season four and I'm giving them thanks in advance for that. Trust me, I really appreciate that. 
they're not just an awesome staff of folks who write for the website and work with me on the audio program. They're also my friends, and I want to say thanks to them for sticking with me throughout the last nine months. They're the best. I can't thank them enough. Check out their columns at binallofamerica.com. One last time here, if you're only listening to the audio program and you're not reading the columns at binallofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. You heard me at the beginning of the program, but I'm going to say it again, my friends, because I know the people who are listening right now are the hardcore BOA audio listeners. Last year I teased you saying we might be taking the MP3s down. I'm not going to pull that garbage this year. I'm willing to say for a fact that we're going to keep the MP3s up as long as possible. But, as I noted, BOA Audio is in the red right now. We need to get back on solid footing. We need to get back in the black. We've put out close to 100 free episodes of Underground Esoteric Audio for anyone who wants to pick them up. The costs of that sort of thing in production and distribution are just tremendous. As such, I'm going to have to turn to you now and ask you to make a donation and to help us get back in the black and get on some solid footing as we head into Season 4. How do you make a donation? You ought to be able to figure that out by now, but I'll run it down for you one last time. You go to binallofamerica.com or the BOA Audio Archive page, click the PayPal button, and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA Audio and binallofamerica.com up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. There's not much left to say, my friends. We've reached the final curtain. Season 3 is in the books, 31 episodes, over 40 hours of esoteric audio. As I said, it's been an exhausting nine months. It's had its ups, it's had its downs, but throughout, it's been quite a ride, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Have an excellent summer, what's left of it. Until you hear from me again in Season 4, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening, and signing off.